This show is brought to you by Buzzsprout.com, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast. Chapter 18 Eva Clocks One. My dearest mentor, this is likely the last entry that will be inked in this journal by my hand before it shall be passed on to a new owner, as you passed it on to me, what feels like so very long ago. As per your instruction upon this final entry's completion, I shall leave this journal where I am sure that it can be found. During my early years at the refuge, or the sanctuary as it is now known, I had some difficulties adjusting from my old life out in the country to a new life. A sudden, new, metropolitan life, without parents, without family, that of blood. Many others who I was also suddenly living alongside had what I viewed as the joy of never knowing their parents, or any siblings they might have in another life played with, fought with, or cried with. In my mind, you couldn't miss what you had never really known in the first place, and so I thought the others superior to myself. The sanctuary has always been, as far as I understand, a place for raising, cultivating, and training mystically sensitive outcasts such as myself, and yet, even in those hallowed halls of darkening marble steadily growing glowing silver veins, regarding the sheer height and width of the chasm-like sparring chambers, supported by columns reminiscent of kingdoms of old, the students conjuring, casting, bending, and binding, as if they were menial tasks, or a mere spectacle. I was speechless, near tearful. I remember the first time my eyes fell upon the segregated glass chambers in which, to take just one example, bound volumes formed almost entirely of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs were displayed, and in which I could see more people reading together. I remember a child interpreting scripture aloud, and a spectacled elder listening intently. Even with all that wonder, all that belonging, I still felt alone. I could see and feel people staring at me, looking into me, likely with the helpful assistance of whatever deity they happened to be courting. I could see them see my weakness. To them, I was weighed down by misplaced privilege and far too much sentimentality. Sentimentality that was, alas, also misplaced, given what everybody else had come to understand about what I had done. After all, not many around me, nor indeed on the outside, needed the help of a deity to read a newspaper headline. It would be many months before I would come to understand that a great deal of the others were not weighed down by memories of what was, given that most sanctuary students have never, to my current knowledge, known their parents for long enough to remember them but most were dragging an extra piece of baggage alongside the rest. What might have been? That, along with a different kind of guilt, an empty guilt, perhaps, given their lack of reasoning for abandonment. Most had been robbed of that reason, and so they, somewhat simultaneously, seemed to see me as superior to them. Knowing what I had lost, Knowing what I had done, however unwittingly, at least meant I had a point of reference, an example to live up to, or rather, not to live up to. There were destructive impulses born of habit and time and experience that needed to be kept under control, whims and fancies that desperately needed to be curtailed. 
which meant that a great deal of my issues in the early days tended to center around forming a stable initial connection with what lies beyond the normal scope, or beyond the veil, as you would say. Hidden energies. And you were the one who guided me, who taught me to see that what I had done was a reaction to what had already been done to me. The series of violations and despicable acts that finally caused me to end too many of their lives with nothing but a scream or a fatal psychic shout, as I later learned it to be called. My only intention was to raise the alarm, but in my fit of rage and panic, and after years of silence, I seemed to set ablaze their very souls and stop their hearts. All their hearts. In truth, I cared not for the soul or the heart of my father, the perpetrator, nor much for my mother, for her awareness and silent compliance. The twins, however, were a different matter entirely. The twins were an accident, one I shan't discuss here, as I am already heading the misremembered way of the tangential prey. I think our family feline was the only one lucky enough to be out of my range on that fateful night. I never did find her. My point is, when I was assigned to you, you could have treated me with contempt. I was expecting this to be the case given the heinous attitude of the Rexus crone in the Initiate's department, who had seen fit to provide me with two children's dolls to, and I quote, cling on to for dear life during this difficult adjustment period. The previous elation of being transmuted through a mystical gateway and not being carted off to an asylum or prison, however, was thankfully enough for me to simply set the dolls aside and inform her that there was no need for her to take such a liberty, while attempting to wipe away the chemical residue from the crone's tall, stretched torso. But, Araxus crone, you are not. All you did was smile. Smile and talk and listen to me and meditate. Help me clear my mind, to focus and compartmentalize my pain in equal measure, and to help guide others who had less ambition or direction, to help them realize that they didn't need past memories of pain and chaos to be able to manipulate chaos itself, but rather to shift their perspective from one of loss to one of infinite gain. It was you, my dear, who said, and I believe you were quoting, There is a rather sizable difference, is there not? between what was and what might have been. Four years on, that became the driving force of our various classes and excursions. The studies of misspoke days, nights, and entire histories that were never lived, or were lived and were somehow erased, misplaced, or displaced, so that present history could take its course. The strange phantom footprints of the misremembered meanwhiles the strange blurry before and after images of the never were. That is, until you were called away. Another fateful day. And I was left not alone, but stuck down this rabbit hole of potential. This dark potential. This research I came to realize rather recently isn't exactly forbidden. However, it is rather frowned upon, and so I have been regularly inking details of our newfound knowledge of this particular subject within the pages of this journal. I do hope you have been receiving and storing them promptly. A great deal of my solo research has converged and led me to one place, close enough to the London Sanctuary to examine. 
but could lead to my demise given the inherent mysterious nature of the place. Some people, according to reports, have gone missing there before, never to be found again. And so, I have chosen to undertake this journey alone, though I must acknowledge that I could not have arrived here without the help of some of the other students at the sanctuary and the occasional wayward mentor. I have informed no one but you of this solo adventure, however. According to my research, it's much better if nobody realizes I'm gone. It always feels strange pouring my heart out into these writings, reading them over briefly after the entry is completed, in a somewhat reflective manner, closing the journal and then opening it later to find those words vanish from sight entirely. I used to wonder where the words disappeared to. Now I know. Other than some kind of mystical security system, it ensured that the journal could be passed on to those who needed it without any need of replacing or rebinding. Journals like this are hard to come by. On the back of it, as well as on the spine, there are inscriptions. I only know, my darling, that my experience in the half-seen world, the demi-monde, started out, though not entirely, as a choice. It was what that choice brought along with it that I did not anticipate. What, at the time, I could not have anticipated, careless and entitled as I was, or had been initially raised to be. Perhaps that's why it chose me. And I can tell you no, I am not referring to this journal. Despite the unsavory and somewhat abstract methods by which I acquired the information and skills, I was able to translate the inscriptions on the journal's blurb. I know I wouldn't be the first to do this, and I somewhat doubt I will be the last. But I came to the conclusion that the engravings on the back of the journal were and are far older than the ones on the journal's spine, and so, naturally, I started with what I hoped was the beginning and was able to transcribe several spells on separate pieces of parchment, personally memorized and hidden away in separate secret places known only to me and trusted others known to both of us. I do hope you approve of those I chose to confide in, but I always remember you saying repeatedly that your trust of my judgment was and is never in question. It is one of the many things that I have needed to survive without you all this time. Your trust. Regardless, the spells are safe. I won't, of course, go through all the translated ones. Time is short and I never forget who I'm talking to. But I will share one of the first ones I came across that related to conjuring up writings from previous owners of this journal, comparatively rather basic to the ones I latterly dissected. But even this simple spell comes with its own difficulties. It isn't just the difficult incantation pronunciations, nor the sheer length of the spells themselves. It was the fact that once you had managed to reveal the writings, which itself was trial and error depending on whether you have acquired a list of the names of the journal's previous owners, something I did not possess and something even you were not able to provide, there was more than a 50% chance that the journal owners themselves spoke their own secret, ancient, perhaps even technically extinct languages, perhaps still being spoken by the few. Languages still spoken in the world today, even remote ones, were at least possible, if troublesome, to translate but words that didn't seem to exist in any part of Earth's history. That was another matter entirely. How fortunate then that I managed to translate a second spell from the journal's engravings, one that allowed me to convert at least a few of the indecipherable entries into Latin, a language only half dead, giving me a much stronger basis to work with. I came across many entries, but those relevant to my own entry included some kind of newly ancient song. And I used the phrase newly ancient in the way that you yourself would. In short, these indecipherable writings could just as much be from the future as from further in the past. In other words, the lineage of the entries is by no means chronological. 
They are, by no means, linear. Those not as discerning as myself may just assume, if they are successful in revealing previous writings, perhaps on certain pages, that they are bound to be from the previous owners. Previous, chronologically speaking, from the current owner, whomever they happen to be. But where, indeed, is the proof of this? Just because I was able to use magic to translate entries written in otherworldly languages into Latin, doesn't mean that the entry is in any way linked to ancient Rome, or the Tiber area, or any of the other places across the world in which Latin became the dominant language throughout history. Latin was perhaps merely the bridge language chosen by the journal's original owners. I suppose that I, at least, may never know. My point is I was able to translate part of what I think are the verse or chorus to a song, possibly a poem favoured by the author of the entry in question that differs from the others, which is the other reason I bring it up. This particular entry closed with a date, which I believe was marked in the early 21st century upon painstaking examination of the ink and graphology. In pale blue ink, from what I can tell. You impressed yet, my dear? I've been doing my homework. The future is near. I've surpassed my line. Redemption came, and then I ran out of time. Does your epitaph represent you for revival? If that's true, then why don't we break the cycle? Strange, do you not agree? For this to be at least possibly dated so many years from this one, and yet to feel so much kinship with whoever wrote it originally, or whoever felt the need to write it down once again to remind them of something, or possibly in the context of this journal, to help them forget to help them move on. I hope they do. I might have found a way to stop what is happening, Mentor, to stop the descending darkness looming above our heads that is now slowly beginning to poison the air. I can taste it. I'm convinced that I and a few others are at least partially responsible, given our collective foray into darker potential, but I also highly suspect that I and the other students you taught are merely adding to the problem. Apologies for that, regardless. The root of the problem, however, the source of the issue, is why you were called away, wasn't it? You're out on the front line, aren't you? The future line. I can see you. I see you in my dreams. Every night. Things are changing in this city, Mentor. Even those who choose not to see are breaking out of their shells of denial. The sun no longer rises like it used to, and sets far too quickly. There are nights when the rain turns corrosive. Winter has come much earlier this year, and many people on the streets are suffering and dying. More than usual. And those who have the eyes to see, and can see it, watching and staring, are terrified. I'm not saying that I am the only one who can see, and I'm not saying that I am not terrified. Even the seers themselves are losing their very sanity, and the healers are struggling with these new corrosive wounds that spread infection. What I am telling you is that I think I've found its source, a focal point for this dark potential that may also be extraordinarily relevant to our aforementioned research and may also be a cultivation area, a receiver or beckoning point for the time bleeds that you were called away to heal. The many future line and future wide anachronisms I am positive our work is the key. The location is a place in North London, 
an ancient woodland in the middle of Harringay called Coldfall. By the time I get there, my dear, it will be darker and far colder. Going by daylight would be the obvious solution, but the grey smog that it seems to replace or cover the sun would, I suspect, be too good a hiding place for such an entity. If, of course, such an entity or gateway even exists. In truth, I do not know. Maybe if I cannot immediately spark the flame, I may learn something in Cold Fallwood that will help bring me closer to a way to save London. It may well be that there are others like myself trapped in Coldfall, who need someone to rescue them, people perhaps more easily led astray. Maybe I am walking into a trap, just as they did. But I have a hunch that if there are people trapped there, they won't have gone in as prepared as I will be. I, my love, have your teachings. May we stand unshaken amidst a crash of worlds. Eva, November, 1884. Postscript. I do always remember what your final words to me were on our last and hopefully at least penultimate meeting, when I asked you if it was possible for us to see each other again. You grinned and said, Eva, my adorable little raindrop. What a thing to say to someone with a solid silver self-cleaning sorcerer separator. Oh, my dearest mentor, you never fail to make me smile. Two. Twilight had almost given way to night by the time Eva found herself outside Coldfall's southern gate. She regarded its height, seeing the near-shrinking ivy vines curling themselves around the top of the entrance sign. The word cold was almost invisible, making it seem somehow warmer, and the other seemed only to be periodically visible by the light of the flickering moon and the occasional illumination from the lantern Eva had covertly liberated from the sanctuary. The quickening wind, however, would be sure to soon extinguish the flame. She checked her watch. It was twenty minutes to midnight. Eva peered through the gaps in the gate. Her piercing green eyes were drawn to the fog passing gently through the trees. A little too gently, Eva noted, considering the strength of the wind. It seemed to be painting its own steady art of motion. The fog's density, Eva supposed, would no doubt increase as one's journey into the woods continued to deepen, but she also took note of the fact that it seemed to be at its lightest on the fringes, such as where she currently was. Taking a deep breath, Eva entered the ancient wood, being careful to choose the correct path. It was beginning to drizzle. The entrance now directly behind her, Eva attempted to match her current position with the fading images in her mind. She raised the lantern, passing it from hand to hand in a circular motion around her position while staying entirely fixed to the same spot on the ground. All she could see below her feet were dead leaves and the occasional protruding tree root. Barking dogs sounded in the far distance, causing Eva to raise her head in earnest. Ahead of her, Eva could see a few good-sized copse of trees, 
The thickness of the tree trunks delineated an oak-like finish to her mental comparison. The cops themselves were partially illuminated by the light of a now-clouded moon, and their thinner branches were wiggling in the breeze. Forward, she thought, stealing herself. Just go forward. The sound of her own footsteps on the dead leaves made her grit her teeth as she advanced. Her jaw was throbbing and almost clamped by the time she had made her way to a split in the path. She thought she could just make out a small break in the fog, which seemed accessible via the left-hand pathway. Eva raised her lantern, attempting to focus on the flame beyond the glass. Standing as still as she could, with her arm outstretched, she swiveled her arm right, towards where the fog was at its most dense. The twisting candle flame began to darken, the flame's tip bending to the right as it did so. Eva paused her swiveling arm, staring deeper into the dying flame. Her eyes briefly darted to the flame's reflection. Then she swiveled her movement, awakening the flame as the lantern shifted left towards the clearer pathway. Eva allowed herself a small, one-sided smile. Trust in flames, she whispered to the night. The air in the mysterious forest was continuing to grow colder. Eva attempted the method of compartmentalization as she continued her journey, her pace increasing. She could be scared, maybe she was terrified, but fear, though a useful tool, would only serve her so far in this place. For now, it was keeping her on her toes and was banishing her mind from the worst of the cold. Her eyes had adjusted to the darkness somewhat, and she was beginning to learn the differentiations between the strange sounds the forest made. At times, she could have sworn that she could hear near-distant music, strings, perhaps a harp of some kind. Sad. Foreboding. But as soon as she seemed to try to actually focus on it, it faded out of earshot. Eva's lantern was still steadily burning, mostly lighting the ground beneath her feet, along with any trip hazards or blind rabbit holes. She checked her pocket watch, a gift from her mentor, stopping in her tracks and raising the lantern to see. It seemed to be ticking slowly, anti-clockwise. Well, that's just maddening and unhelpful. You don't usually run backwards. What the hell is this place? She pocketed the watch, stealing a glance at the branches above her head. Then she looked away. But before continuing her steps, she looked up again. At first, her eye was caught by the gaps. Not the gaps in the mist, nor the gaps in the trees, but the seeming gaps or holes in the sky blanket, through which light of a very particular kind shone through. Starlight. Eva could see the stars. It had been weeks since there had been large enough gaps in the fog to see the stars. Eva became transfixed by these bright burning embers until, around the bend of her vision, in the corner of her eye, Eva saw something twitching. Something much closer to home, much closer to her up in the trees. Something was moving. Of course, Eva considered it could be any number of things, birds, squirrels, even deciduous foliage, but there was something incredibly unsettling about the pattern of movement that was forming in the trees immediately above Eva's head. The gap in the fog had closed, and the rain was getting heavier. Eva raised her lantern, and although she was a tall woman, she wasn't quite tall enough to shed any light on the branches above. Then she heard a sound, 
one that relaxed her, was familiar to her. It was a sound that would be familiar to many. The mewling of a cat. Eva stepped back from the tree to get a better view. She heard the cat again. She heard the cat again. And again. She beckoned to the cat through sound in the way that most humans do, hoping that it would move to a place where she could see it. It did, seeming to prowl by the light of the moon. A rather large black cat with deep green eyes and short, thin fur. It stared at her several yards above her head. It stared into her. Its eyes flared. Eva gasped and took a further step back. She was scared. Why was she so scared? It was just a cat. It wasn't even hissing at her. Eva couldn't understand her fear, but then she remembered the sound. The sound that had initially directed her towards the creature, the telltale sound of its mewling. Eva had relaxed because it was a familiar sound, but maybe she relaxed a little too much. Perhaps that specific short, sharp meow was a little too familiar. Eva took a deep breath and tried to focus her eyes. She said, talk to me. Come on. Once again, the cat meowed, that brief staccato rasp. A further sliver of moonlight cut into the clouds, shining down on the creature. Eva took another deep breath. Tabs? She said, feeling foolish but not being able to stop her words. Is that you? Why? Came a reply that sent Eva stumbling. She fell backwards, hitting the mud-covered ground along with the lantern. The flame went out. Eva recoiled, terrified. Mm, miss me. Eva screamed. The cat hissed, leaping from the branches, almost gliding through the air, growing and growing to almost panther-like proportions, travelling on a trajectory that would end with the creature's claws in her face. And yet she was frozen to the spot, all of her mentors teaching suddenly for naught. The giant cat roared. She was going to die. She knew it. It was the only thing that could possibly happen. She tried to close her eyes, but couldn't. Though, half a second later, it seemed, Eva was indeed still alive. How was that possible? Somehow, regaining movement, she sat up, immediately sensing something behind her. Perhaps the creature was toying with her, maybe it was a mere trick of perspective, but she couldn't take her mind off of one distinct, simple fact. Eva had felt no pain, had felt, in fact, nothing at all, but had heard something land, most likely behind her, but that wasn't all of it. She had actually heard not one, but two distinct thuds behind her, to her left and to her right, but there had only been one creature. Eva stood slowly without turning. A whispering sound filled the air. She didn't want to turn around, but she knew she had to. Finding her lantern, she swiveled, breathing deeply as she did so. But those breaths disappeared when she saw them. Two little humans in matching pale lemon dresses and braided brunette hair. She wasn't altogether sure if the two girls in front of her had always been there, or whether the previously small, turned very large, clawed creature had become the twins, 
but she was fast losing sight of that recent memory, the more she stared. Eva could not see their faces, for they were both facing away. Suddenly their hands were joined, and they were giggling in the way that Eva was certain her siblings would have if they had had a chance to grow this old. She knew it was them. It had to be them. Olivia and Natasha. She had to go after them, to hold them, to tell them that she was sorry. But as soon as Eva moved, they started to run, the childlike tittering only increasing to almost insane proportions. Stop, Eva cried, giving chase. Please, come back. Please. How could they run so fast? Surely she would be faster, and yet she couldn't catch up. They seemed not just to run, but shift positions ahead of her. So when she had moved beyond a particular tree, or ascended a particular incline beyond which they had disappeared from view, they were already fifty yards further on. This went on for what felt like eons. Eva screamed and cried for them to stop or at least slow down. She screamed her sister's names over and over and over to no avail. The noises emanating from the twins morphed to unintelligible whispers and giggles that chilled Eva far further to the bone than the atmosphere of this forest. There were several falls and many injuries to Eva's arms and legs and head in an attempt to catch up with the twins. By the time she had made it through a gap in some rusted metal railings that she was positive she had seen them clamber through, she looked like she would if she had decided to take on half of London in a street fight. Where previously Eva Darling looked like the kind of dream one might have if one had fallen asleep listening to a Sheridan Le Fanu novel, with her piercing red lips, marble skin, large glowering green eyes and piercing, chiseled features, now she looked like the kind of nightmare one might have if they had fallen asleep and subsequently been strangled to death by somebody they trusted. No more nightmares to compare after that one. No more dreams at all. Eva's face and arms were bruised. She didn't even want to think about her legs, and she could feel blood trickling from various wounds that she was also attempting to ignore. Nonetheless, she squeezed through the gap in the fence, stumbling over damaged, overgrown graves and fallen trees. The path was much less worn than she had encountered so far, and so she used the lantern's shell to pick her way through the undergrowth, most of which had been tinged by the corrosive dampness of the cursed rain. It was much more concentrated in the clouds over the wood, causing Eva to burn her hands and the exposed skin on her body. Instinctively, she put her wounded fingers into her mouth to soothe the pain, momentarily forgetting that that also meant ingesting the rain. It burned her tongue and throat, and she was beginning to feel nauseous by the time she made it through the foliage. On the edge of a clearing, her vision blurring, Eva fell to her knees. Three. The grass in the clearing was long, a deep, damp green that seemed to span for half a mile around. Steam was rising from the frayed ends of the blades, mingling with the cloying fog. To Eva's mind, it was reminiscent of cooling vapour lazily floating above molten jade. Eva spat out pinkish saliva. She groaned, pushing herself to her feet, attempting to focus her eyes on what they had passed over just before she fell. The frown on her scratched forehead deepened, sending a sharp pain from the middle of her nose 
to her hairline. Suddenly, she began walking rapidly, striding though unsteadily toward the center of the clearing. Her mud-stained, run-down boot heels digging into the deep, green surface of the field, making an unpleasant and distracting squishing sound that almost overpowered the near-distant sound of the twins. But not for long. Although she was relying mostly on echolocation at this point, given the fact that she had lost sight of the twins some time ago, she had a hunch that the midpoint of the clearing was where they were headed. Eva wiped blood from her eyes. At the centre of the clearing stood a mausoleum, perhaps a temple. It was a large structure constructed of white marble and grey stone, looming up into the distant sky. The mist was thick enough to obscure the top of the structure, but was also where the mist was at its most prominent, where it collected. Engraved on the temple columns were markings, and Eva could not quite, in her slightly altered state, put a finger on exactly where she recognised them from, or, indeed, what they might mean. The twins were nowhere to be seen, but Eva could still hear them, swimming and splashing around in her ear canal. The laughter had once again regressed into whispers, and for a further few seconds, it was as if a hornet had hatched inside Eva's skull and was fast growing furious of the confined space. She put bloodied fingers to her temple as she raised her head, slowing her pace to regard the structure as she came to the bottom of its steps. That was when the rain stopped, fading to a spit, and so too did the whispering, also the laughter. Everything seemed to still. Eva's ascent was near silent and tentative. She wanted to go faster, but somehow feared disturbing the sudden surrounding calm. This also gave her more time to look at where she was putting her feet. She noticed markings engraved into each step. This time she did recognize them. Roman numerals, starting with the number one and climbing by one along with the temple steps themselves, each numeral corresponding. She became sheltered by the temple's overhanging ascending entranceway on step number seven, and given her recent exertions in the forest was beginning to kick herself for neglecting to bring any water by step number 17. Maybe she wasn't as prepared as she had first thought. Eva avoided stepping on the engravings themselves, opting for either side, but had counted 23 steps with the help of the engravings by the time she reached the top. The temple wasn't exactly decrepit by any means, but clearly hadn't been maintained in some time. Baskets of dead flowers hung from the columns either side of the large, looming double doors at the top of the steps, above which were the letters M-O-N-D. Mont. Eva frowned, searching her memory. It was the German word for moon. However, after trying the door and cursing at its immovability, she noticed that the word above the door was constructed of some kind of metal overlay fixed onto the stone of the temple. And the word itself wasn't exactly centered properly above the double doors. Was there, perhaps, a letter missing? Eva looked around about her and down the steps up which she had climbed and could see nothing, nor remember seeing anything large enough to be applicable. Eva turned around so fast, she made all of the wounds on her torso flare simultaneously. There was nobody behind her, but she could have sworn she heard a whispering sound, similar, she supposed, to the twins' mischievous, incoherent chattering that previously crisscrossed the laughter. However, this voice was far slower, softer, 
even strangely soothing. It was odd that voices in the form of a whisper dull the voice enough to make it difficult to identify the whisperer themselves. It might have been one of the twins, now more calm and collected, but it just as easily could have been someone else. And perhaps it was wishful thinking, but she called out for her mentor anyway, uttering the name with an upward inflection at the end. Two, of course, no reply. Eva shook her head, feeling foolish. She was still staring down the steps and out into the clearing when the whisper came again from behind her. Something was whispering to her, calling to her. The thought returned that she was being led into a trap by the dark potential energy of this forest, and likely the temple. And though her original intention had in fact been to spring said trap, she hadn't expected the experience to be quite so tailor-made. Or perhaps if the magic of the forest was able to get inside the minds of those who ventured there, it could use the people's experiences themselves to project lost souls that never, in Eva's case, or rather the twins' case, had a chance to grow, letting the human grief that forms images of days and moments never lived do the work all on its own. None of these reasonable theories, however, stopped Eva from trying the door again, then trying it again, and again, and growing more and more irate and impatient. She kicked at it, battered at the handles with the dripping shell of her lantern, and attempted to shoulder barge it, only making the wounds on her arms much worse. The second attempt to barge the door seemed to ignite the twins' laughter again, but this time it was much louder, echoing from within the bowels of the temple. Eva was sure of that, but she was also sure that there was a differentiation. She was positive that she could hear not just laughter, but sobbing. One twin crying, one twin laughing, one laughing at the other, or both of them having totally different reactions to something? Or a number of things? There was no way Eva could tell from here. But instead of continuing to force the door, she began to examine it more closely. Below the right-hand door handle was a large hole, one that looked as intentional as it did impractical. It was a near-perfect circle, other than a small cylindrical bump at the 90-degree angle of the circumference. Eva attempted to put her finger through the hole, there was a small amount of space, then just more crumbling stone, and it seemed a smaller metallic circle in the middle. Eva frowned. No, she said to herself, now fumbling in her pockets. It can't be. She took out her pocket watch and opened it. The watch was still ticking anti-clockwise, at least the second-by-second second hand was ticking. But it seemed that the other two hands had remained at the time of 18 minutes to midnight, around the time it had been when Eva had entered the woods. But with her initial tentative pace and the seeming endless shouting as she pursued the twins, surely much more than three minutes had passed. True, the watch could be broken, but Eva's faith in her mentor told her otherwise. She took a deep breath and placed the watch in the space, front-facing. She was overjoyed to see that it matched. Somehow, it was a key. It seemed that the mechanism had a magnetic seal of some kind, which disengaged the lock on the double doors, and upon gentle but firm extraction, Eva was able to remove the watch and push open the heavy stone doors. As soon as the seal on the door was broken, the sound of the twins in utter hysteria poured into the outside. Cacophonous, stone-quaking hysteria. Eva steeled herself, 
relighting the candle and the lantern with a simple looks. There was a small narrow entrance corridor that gave way to a vast vaulted spacious interior. Upon entering the space, Eva heard the near distant sound of the doors closing behind her and the lighting change. She looked around. Eva wasn't previously able to work out, at least from the outside, how long and large the temple was due to the surrounding fog, but now she thought it might be larger on the inside than she imagined the entire clearing in which the temple sat to be. Finally, her eyes fell upon the twins. Still, they had their backs to her, so she couldn't tell Olivia from Natasha or vice versa, but she could see that one was indeed giggling hysterically, bouncing on giddy knees and waving her arms around like a drunk, and one thwacking and pounding at the floor in what seemed to be grief-stricken rage. Eva came closer, but slowed as she got within touching distance of the twins. They seemed not to notice her. One only laughed and pointed, occasionally falling on her side. The other only screamed and cried and thumped the ground in a bowed motion of prayer. What Eva wanted to do was look at the twins' faces. That was, in fact, in that moment, all she wanted to do. But she couldn't take her eyes off of what the twins were ultimately focusing their energy towards. A grave. One single grave in the middle of this vast space. Many yards beyond which a larger set of double doors lay. It was a rather grandiose, expensive-looking grave that rose a few feet high and seemed to be the only thing in this entire temple that looked regularly maintained. Eva raised her lantern, then dropped it. Then Eva too, slowly, breathlessly, and clumsily, fell to her knees. Dropping to the twins' height, who were still engaged in their own loops of delight and despair. She still did not look at their faces, only stared forward at the name on the grave. Her name. Eva Darling. Ave, she heard herself say, and that was when the twins suddenly fell silent. But only for a few seconds, sensing the twins rise from their fallen positions, Eva closed her eyes. She felt one hand on her left shoulder, the other on her right, and a small squeeze from each, letting her finally touch, or be touched, by what might have been. Ave at Fale. future is near. I've surpassed my line. Redemption came, and I ran out of time. Does your epitaph represent you for revival? If that's true, then why don't we break the cycle? If you're a podcast clown like I am, you must have dreamed about starting your own. Let me tell you, my dreadful darlings, it's never easy, but it's one of the best decisions I ever made. It was either that or waste away in my own subjective ascendance. Of course, it can be more than just a little overwhelming to know how to get started. 
Buzzsprout can help you launch your podcast professionally and in style, linking you with all the major podcasting platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and much, much more. Join us up in the buzzing, sprouting podcast cloud to breathe in the renowned analytical sound of the accurate analysis and promotion tools provided. Follow the link in the show notes below to start your journey and receive a $20 Amazon gift card. We're waiting for you. Buzzsprout, the best and excitingly prettiest way to start a podcast.